Welcome to the Libro Europe podcast, European Libro Forum project. I'm your host, Ricardo Silvestre. For this episode, we have the author and journalist Paul Friedges. Paul is from Sweden, and he has covered media issues for a long time in his home country. However, he embarked in an adventure to go to Ukraine, and from that experience, he wrote a book called In Ukraine Adrift. That'll be the focus of our conversation. We talk about the importance of Ukraine in the history of our continent, but also his future in the European project. We also talk about how Ukraine can solve some of his internal problems like corruption, post-ideology politics, and the influence of oligarchs. And that's our conversation. I'll be back to tell you about some of the events organized by ELF for this month of November. I'm here with Paul Fridges. Paul, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. Thank you. Nice to be here. Oh, it's great to have you here. And uh, let me congratulate you first on what is a terrific book. It's beautifully written. Uh, it's also read with uh, very provocative topics that makes the reader think about them long after we finish with the book. And also the other thing is that you have an excellent capacity of taking the reader to the moment. For example, your descriptions, I felt like being in the cities in Ukraine where you were. And also the small anecdotes that you uh, introduced. And sometimes those are, are very funny. The joke about tractors or traveling to other countries without leaving your land, they really made me laugh out loud. <laughs> One of them, I was actually on the airport lounge uh, reading your book, and then I started laughing like a maniac, and people look at me like I was, <laughs> like I was insane. But getting to the book and getting to the importance of it, And even before that, I would like to focus on you. And that is, you've been a journalist covering media issues for a long time in Sweden. You don't speak Ukrainian, per se. You haven't lived in, in Ukraine uh, yet. So why this book? Why uh, this adventure? Well, a very good and relevant question. I think, or I would say that, that, that precisely the point with the book was that I was traveling with the reader for the first time uh, to Ukraine. It's the huge, uh, a giant neighbor to you, to the European community and the European Union, and very unknown uh, by most people. So I wanted to make that trip, and I've done a couple of books about countries, and this was like a, a journey uh, into something that you should know more about, but, but you, which you don't. And uh, so it was, uh, I, I really want to, to, I think that's the quality of the book that I experience Ukraine uh, with the, the reader. Although I've been there mm -hmm. three times, or the first time was 2002, but I'm still, I'm not a native uh, of the country, or, or I don't speak the language. So that makes me uh, more of a guest, and uh, it's a discovery book, if you will. But but why why Ukraine? Any particular fascination about the, the country? Was yeah. your travelings led you to that? Was there a progression to get to Ukraine? Yes. Well, I, I, I thought a lot about it because it's surrounded. It, it was. It, I mean, it's a country. We have a war in Europe, and uh, we we yes. don't. Really, uh, it's something we don't think about because it's out out of sight in a way. Mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, and and if you uh, and if you would ask most people, they probably wouldn't even. Uh, think it, there is a war going on, uh, but uh, and at the same time, it's a country uh, in a, in a very deep conflict, and at the same time, it's a country moving towards the west from Russia, 
in a very slow and long uh, process. And it's also, so that's a second good reason. And another thing is that it's, uh, it's a country that's surrounded by autocratic, more or less auto autocratic regimes, uh, nationalistic and autocratic, and uh, sometimes like in the case of Hungary, anti-liberal regimes. And in that sense, even though Ukraine is corrupt and poor and uh, hopeless in many ways, it is still in some way a, a, a country striving for freedom and mm -hmm. the Western values. I agree with you. It was quite unfortunate for Ukraine and Ukraine people that the two reasons for the country to be known is either the Russians took over Crimea or Donald Trump tried to bribe uh, Zelensky to do him a favor. So, um, mm. yeah. But you did a you do a tremendous job in in the book, not only as you mentioned uh, taking the reader with you, but also confronting the reader with the realities of the country. And you just mentioned a couple, and we'll get into them. But first, let's start with more of a political approach. Uh, Ukraine, in your uh, analysis, can be seen as having three political blocks, which is a nationalist block, a Western-oriented, and you just mentioned that, and then a pro-Russian. But at the same time, and Paul, let me tell you that this was one of the moments that uh, my hairs raised in my arms as I was reading, and that is the fact that there's a lot of politics that are based in theatrics, in charisma mm. of leaders, and not the ideology of them per se. Please get a little more into that, because unfortunately, it's not just a restraint to Ukraine. We can, we, we're seeing this more and more all over Europe and the world. Yeah. Yes, in that sense, uh, that's another fascinating, uh, fascinating thing with uh, Ukraine. It's a post-ideology country, if, if the expression uh, is, is apt. Um, because the, the, the parties are normally uh, initiated by money from uh, big oligarchs, so-called oligarchs, that have a lot of money in the industry. So it's a huge country, and some people... Uh, during the 90s, gathered uh, a lot of capital and a lot of ownership uh, around the coal mines and, uh, and other and the industries and, uh, and the iron ore industries. And they now, after a while, they wanted to use their influence in politics. And so they support uh, different parties or, and raise money to, to support a party. And then uh, they try to link up with some uh, charismatic leader, and and that's the start of a political project that turns into a party. But many times, when they sh when they uh, lose uh, the luster that they can gain in the beginning, they just disappear, more or less overnight. Like the Party of the Regions, that was the biggest party of the country, uh, more for uh, east-leaning Russia from the party. That basically disappeared after the revolution of uh, all the, the uprising of uh, 2014. It just disappeared, which is uh, fascinating for somebody in Sweden, where you have parties living for 100 years, and if they lose, if they lose like three points, uh, percentage points, you, you get totally baffled. But there, you know, a 40% party can just disappear overnight. And the pro-Russian then connects uh, quite nicely to something you describe in the book. You go into also 
in great detail, which is what is uh, the, the connections between Ukraine and that part of Europe. And this is a sentence for you, and I'm quoting you now, that Moscow is Russia's heart, St. Petersburg it's his head, Kiev the mother, and Novogrod the father. But, uh, Paul, and, and you mentioned that in the book, Ukraine is also now playing a seminal part in what is the future of the European Union. It did with the dissolution of the Soviet Union and now into a new frontier of uh, approaching, as you mentioned, to the Western part of Europe. So where are we now in, in that historical parallel? Well, it's quite interesting because this really plays on to the name of the country, which is Ukraine, which means uh, Ukraina. We have something, uh, the, a part of uh, the Balkans called Ukraina. It means the country, the border country or the border part of the, uh, of the region. And it's the border country. And that uh, it has always been a border land in some respect. And... Um, during the the, uh, the the dissolution of the Soviet Union, they were going to to regroup the Soviet Union uh, in a new union, and uh, uh, then they had a meeting in in uh, in uh, Belarus, and uh, the, the countries of uh, Belarus, Ukraine, and Russia met there, and <clears throat> then Ukraine decided to have a referendum, called for a referendum on the issue if they were going to re be reintroduced into the to the new union uh, and then the referendum said no we not we want to be our own country and that led to the the virtual dissolution and complete dissolution of the mm -hmm. soviet empire so there wasn't any continuation after the formal breakup of the soviet empire there weren't any of the hard countries ukraine belarus and russia they couldn't continue without ukraine and so it uh, it uh, disappeared and that happened without any revolutions or, uh, or any bloodshed at all, which was surprising in itself and fascinating, because normally Ukraine always end up in, in uh, terrible wars and, and bloodshed. We'll get to that one after, because I'm, I'm, I'm going to ask you about the change in the liberal world order. But before that, on your book, you also introduce the concept, and, and, and masterfully done, about a Soviet state of mind. And you have a little anecdote, the one about trying to buy a, a ticket for a train, yeah. and then waiting in, in queues, and the queues uh, shifting from one counter to the other. That uh, Our listeners have to read that, just another one of those anecdotes that made me laugh but in this particular <laughs> not in a good way in the bad way but that soviet uh, frame of mind it comes across on your book a couple of times how do you think that that will dissolve will, will it never go away what is your position on that yeah i, I actually don't have an answer to that if it's going to dissolve but some part of it of course was a part of the soviet way of thinking when production uh, uh, all the, the, the production is the uh, is is what makes. If you have a company, it's all about producing and not about the consumers. It's about the producers and not the consumers. Mm -hmm. And that's the planned economy, so to speak. And therefore, if you go, uh, if you have a, a train station selling tickets, the big problem is the customers because they're always trying to to to. They're always keeping the the trains from running in time and so on. Mm -hmm. And 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 it, it would be it would be a lot better system. The system would be perfect because the Soviet uh, train system was covering a third of the world's uh, uh, soil. 
but uh, it's because of the, t- the the travelers that makes the, the delay delays of the train and so on. <laughs> <laughs> so without the traveler, it would be a perfect system, <laughs> and that that's a classic, of course, in, in the in the Soviet economy and the planned economy. But then the question is, of course, arises if this is deeper. Does it also apply to sort of the Russian or say Eastern uh, Eastern way of thinking? Uh, no, I think that would be a bit uh, prejudiced to say. It's mm-hmm. a good point. I'm just I'm just wondering if you can have a McDonald's, the pinnacle of Western consumerism, and then uh, workers in the McDonald's counter that have the Soviet frame of mind. That would be hilarious. <laughs> could, yeah. could be a good TV show. Yeah, but uh, I mean, generally, Ukraine, I think it's a very modern now, a normal country and service oriented in many ways. There's just mm-hmm. pockets of uh, of uh, Soviet thinking uh, remaining in the in the uh, in the production. Very good. Getting back to what you were talking just a minute ago before we went into the Soviet frame of mind, and that is the Ukraine referendum of independence. You mentioned that already in 1991. This caused this great uh, geopolitical transformation in Europe regarding the, the Soviet bloc. And you claim that uh, the main thesis of your book, this is important because you do introduce that this change, this independence was very important. Because I think this is a beacon of uh, freedom in in uh, a region of uh, backwardness and nationalism, and uh, in spite of all the corruption and the chaos, and it's also I mean the freedom is also uh, very fascinating because uh, I live in a country where very much is regulated and we have very strict norms uh, of what to think and uh, what are good values and so on. Whereas in Ukraine, you can think whatever. I mean, you, you're very allowed to have very extreme views, uh, views on different uh, topics. And that itself is, is um, I mean, it, it's a, an effect of this freedom of speech. So it, it's, a, for many people find that very offensive. For instance, that the, you're, you're allowed to have a statue of Stepan Bandera, who was a sort of an extreme right, nationalist leader with uh, strong links to Nazi uh, movement uh, and you know with the that instigated the programs against Jews in in Ukraine but you're still allowed to have a statue of him <laughs> and that would be I would say uh, unthinkable in in Western Europe so that's a part that what that's what comes with anything allowed attitude that uh, persists in, in Ukraine of today. And uh, yeah, I don't know, you know, you can uh, have different views on that, but it's, it's uh, fascinating nevertheless. Plurality, it's, it's a good thing, uh, but I do understand that there maybe there should be limits to pluralities that, so that we don't get, but well, that's, That, that is not a liberal position, to be perfectly <laughs> honest with our uh, listeners. <laughs> But uh, continuing on this topic, the one about you know, the, the future of Ukraine, and you're just mentioning that Ukraine has some things that for us Westerners will make us a little bit uh, confused. And then, of course, if we think 
middle to far future perspective of Ukraine getting more and more closer to the western part of Europe, who knows even getting more and more closer to the European Union one day, being a part of that European family. There is the question of the judicial system. We've been following that very closely. Zelensky has yeah. been trying uh, as he can to, to try to clean it up. It's not easy. And then there's the question of the oligarchs, mm. as, as, as you mentioned, and corruption is quite a part of the Ukraine fabric. And actually, you have a sentence where you're talking with someone from Ukraine and that person said, where you already paid the icons to protect us. So it's normal that we paid the uh, oligarchs to um, get the trains running on time. Where are we going in here? Do you think that this can go fast? It will take a long time. It will take 20 years, maybe. Do you have a feeling for that? Yeah, well, a thousand years at least, but <laughs> <laughs> no, but one thing that uh, comes to mind is that uh, every, for every president, there's been a pretty clear uh, movement, not every, but almost all the presidents in, in Ukraine since the country was founded 30 years ago have been more open-minded and modern, if, if that expression is allowed. Um, so it started in a very traditional manner and it got better and better. And even though it was a bit surprising about Zelensky being uh, a sort of a clown or a joke or entertainer, he's still a man of, you know, good ambitions. Poroshenko, who, who preceded him, was also better, uh, I mean, had good, reasonable values. And it's been going better and better for, for uh, Ukraine over the years. So if you look at it in that way, I mean, it's, it's getting to be a more uh, modern country with normal values, I would say. Maybe I sound very, uh, uh, I sound if I, I'm looking down at Ukraine and, and I feel very uncomfortable sometimes when I'm, I'm true. Uh, when I, I was in Ukraine and people asked me and told me about it was good coming to Europe, you know, because you're going to see what, how things are supposed to be done properly. And I was always feeling quite embarrassed because I, I'm not, I don't think European, Western Europeans do everything properly. But it, that shows that the, Ukraine has this very, uh, this great hope in, in two respects. First of all, that they hope that the, they think that the future is going to be better than, uh, for the next generation, it's going to be better than this generation. That's one thing. And then they're also willing to learn and willing to change and willing to modernize. And I think that's a strength in itself. Then let me ask you something, because you were there, you talk with people, and in the book that comes across the way that you are able to communicate with people from Ukraine and from different cities with different uh, perspectives of Western society and even of politics in the world. Do you think what you just said right now, and that is Ukrainians are able to learn, they're able to improve, they're able to be more positive, but will they be capable of having this critical mass then to rein in corruption by, you know, electing leaders or reining in corruption personally in their jobs, in, in the, the services they have, or the machine of corruption is, is such that it needs an outside source, like, for example, the European Union, tell them, hey, you need to get your house in order if you want to be part of the European Union. I mean, Georgia has basically did it, uh, getting a more, uh, getting, uh, reining in the corruption. 
So I think they could have been done in Ukraine as well. And I think compared to Georgia, it, it should be e easier in a way because it's closer to the European Union. And that makes it, uh, that's a stronger incentive to sort of uh, apply the rules in, in, in the neighboring and more developed states. So just the vicinity to uh, the European Union would make, would be an incentive. And then it also, it is possible to do it. But uh, then, of course, yeah, as you say, political critical mass, those are issues that I don't understand really how they work. Because you, you also describe in the book the uh, Maiden uh, Revolution, the Orange Revolution, as it was known, and that is Ukrainian people. Mm. And, and you do explain in the book that it was just not Kyiv, it was people from everywhere saying, no, 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 we want more proximity to the uh, Western Europe and Western Europe values. So there's hope on that. Yeah, and also th there's another point here to be made, and that's the, the, the war in, in, uh, in Donbass, uh, in the east of Ukraine, and the cutting off of Crimea, when the annexation of Crimea from Russia and the war is sort of also, in a way, cut off. That is, is, is a war that also made the rest of, or the major part of, of uh, Ukraine becoming more Western-dominated, so to speak. That tilted the balance westwards. So that also affects, um, so when, when Putin uh, annexed Crimea, he also made the rest of Ukraine more West-leaning. For several reasons, I guess. Defense, yeah. uh, society, even culture, I guess. Wonderful. Paul, we're running out of time. This is a fascinating conversation. And I'm going to ask you if you please would come back on the podcast because we still have some things to talk about your book. And we can talk about you know geopolitics in a future podcast. But I want to end strongly as you end your book. And this is from you. There are two Ukraines. There are values rather than cultural language. Then you say the country is free, but shared responsibilities have been abandoned. Mm -hmm. But Ukraine people habitually rise up of the ruins and trudge on. You, as someone that was there and someone that in the book, we noticed that you care about Ukraine and Ukraine people. And I, I join you on that. What do you think then is the future of the Ukraine, Ukrainian people? I think they will become a more uh, standard European lot. I think they will be a, a it will it will not return to the author, you know, authoritarian traditions that it has left. Uh, I'm optimistic in that respect, and I hope also that it will remain a, a, an open society because we are now seeing it like an, a, an alternative to the sort of left right as uh, a right right hand capitalism left hand uh, socialism divi division of the world and now seeing this uh, nationalistic capitalism authoritarian of the chinese style and so in that respect i think the 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 uh, the, the ukrainian liberties and the the unruly politics of ukraine is still a, a sort of sign of hope hopefully so hopefully so Paul, tell uh, our listeners where they can follow your work. You have uh, several books, and uh, now I have you on my list of the books to buy for Christmas. You're also a journalist, 
and your author. So for the end of our conversation today, please uh, give us a little bit of a teaser of what you've done, what you're working on for our listeners to, to follow your work and, and, and online where you are. Yes, well, the, the last three books was on the uh, was on silk.se, S-I-L-C.se, uh, which is a democracy and human rights organization uh, of uh, run supported by the Liberal Party in Sweden. Uh, those were the th last three of my books. But now, I, right now, I'm working on a book about media matters, about ethnicity in media, in Swedish media. And that's in Swedish, and, and the rest of my books are also, of course, in Swedish. It's uh, it, There's no use in trying to look for my, my books if you're not a Swedish speaker, I'm afraid. This is the only one that, that's been in English, which is, I'm, of course, immensely proud of. But uh, the translation is good, I think, so I'm, I'm happy that it came out in... Still, I'm going to put all the links uh, of your work on the show notes of the podcast and also where people can follow you online. Again, like I mentioned just a minute ago, I very much would like to have you on the podcast to continue this conversation. I've been talking with Paul Fridges. The book is In Ukraine Adrift. Paul, this was great. Thank you so much for coming to the podcast. Thank you. I'm back, just reminded that you can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. And if you feel like it, give us a five-star review. In that way, you can help us spread even more liberal values and ideas. And now for some of the events organized by ELF for this fourth week of November. On the 25th of November, starting at 10 in the morning GMT time, we have the event People Profit Planet, Promoted Justice in Consumption Production Systems. This event will include three roundtables that will run simultaneously and it will include the contribution of participants that want to enroll in the event. On the 26th of November, we have the event Decentralization in Times of Crisis. This will take place in Stockholm, but will be also online, and it aims to focus on the role of decentralization in preserving liberties with respect to the power of a central government. Another topic of discussion will be to compare different models of government in different European countries. To know more about this event, you just have to go to liberalforum.eu forward slash events on our new website. Please check it out. And this is all for now. I'll be back soon with more podcasts. Until then, let's keep making the world a better place. The Liberal Europe podcast It's organized by the European Liberal Forum with the support of Movimento Liberal Social in Portugal. This podcast is co-founded by the European Parliament, and the European Parliament is not responsible for the contents of this podcast or any news that may be made of it. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the European Parliament and or the European Liberal Forum. <laughs>